0: On today's show, we'll talk about equality, racism, and being a strong nation within our borders and not just beyond. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past, as well as the present, in an
1: effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show.
0: Welcome. I'd like to start today's episode by reading an excerpt from Gunfighter Nation by Richard Slotkin. Richard Slotkin is a cultural critic and historian, and Gunfighter Nation is the third installment in a trilogy exploring the frontier myth. On July 16, 1960, John F. Kennedy came to the podium of the Los Angeles Coliseum to accept the Democratic Party's nomination as candidate for president. It was a tradition of American political oratory that the acceptance speech provide a phrase or slogan that would define the themes of the upcoming campaign and mark them with the candidate's personal signature, an indication of style of thought and action that would characterize the future administration. A successful performance on this occasion was particularly important for Kennedy, for despite his personal appeal and strong performance in the primaries, his candidacy had several apparent liabilities. His youth and lack of executive experience, his Roman Catholic religion, the eternal divisions of his party exacerbated by his hard-nosed primary campaigns, and above all, his need to challenge an incumbent administration headed by Dwight Eisenhower, one of the most popular presidents in the nation's history. Franklin Roosevelt had ended a dozen years of republic incumbency by demanding a new deal for the American people, while Truman had won against the odds in 1948 by echoing that slogan in his call for a fair deal. But these venerated party cries had succeeded under a set of political circumstances that no longer existed, and they symbolized a commitment to social and economic reform that Kennedy did not share. They had won broad acceptance during... Two decades of extraordinary crisis that began with the Great Depression, culminated in the World War, and ended with the beginning of the Cold War against world communism. Kennedy and his advisors believe that eight years of stagnation under Eisenhower had indeed created a crisis in American affairs, but one whose effects were potential rather than immediate. They believed that the administration's conservatism had prevented its making full and effective use of the economic and military power that the federal government had acquired through the New Deal and wartime mobilizations. In this default of action, the economy had failed to realize its potential and communism had been able to make significant gains in the Third World. Unless checked by a revival of American economic and political dynamism, These trends pointed to a weakening of the nation's ability to sustain its great power role. But to make this case against the Eisenhower administration, Kennedy would have to engage the public in an unusually sophisticated response to political events based on an appreciation of threats of peace and prosperity that had not yet become palpable. The signature Kennedy and his advisors settled on was the new frontier. The choice seems an odd one for a candidate identified with the culture, politics, and ideological concerns of the urban centers of the eastern seaboard. Wild West metaphors invoked traditions that seem better suited to Eisenhower, known to be a fan of pulp westerns, and to the Republican Party, which identified itself with the rugged individualism associated with the frontier. Yet Kennedy was able to make New Frontier seem an appropriate and credible way of describing The spirit of his campaign and the style of the administration that followed it. On that first night, Kennedy asked his audience to see him as a new kind of frontiersman confronting a different sort of wilderness.
2: I stand here tonight, facing west on what was once the lost frontier. From the land that stretched 3,000 miles behind us, the pioneers gave up their safety, their comfort and sometimes their lives, to build our new West. They were not the captives of their own doubts, nor the prisoners of their own Christ tags. They were determined to make the new world strong and free, an example to the world, to overcome its hazards and its hardships, to conquer the enemies that threaten from within and out. Some would say that those struggles are all over that all the horizons have been explored, that all the battles have been won, that there is no longer an American frontier. But I trust that no one in this intersection would agree with that sentiment. For the problems are not all solved, and the battles are not all won. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s the frontier of unknown opportunities and peril, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. Woodrow Wilson's new freedom promised our nation a new political and economic framework. Franklin Roosevelt's new deal promised security and succor to those in need. But the new frontier of which I speak is not a set of promises. It is a set of challenges. It sums up, not what I intend to offer to the American people, but what I intend to ask of them. It appeals to their pride. It appeals to our pride, not our security. It holds out the promise of more sacrifice instead of more security the new frontier is here whether we seek it or not beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space unsolved problems of peace and war unconquered problems of ignorance and prejudice unanswered questions of poverty and surplus it would be easier to shrink from that new frontier to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, to be loved by good intentions and high rhetoric, and those who prefer that course should not vote for me or the Democratic Party. But I believe that the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, to the stout in spirit, regardless of party, to all who respond to the scriptural call, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For courage, not complacency, is our need today. Leadership, not salesmanship. And the only valid test of leadership is the ability to lead and lead vigorously. A tired nation, a tired nation, said David Lloyd George, is a Tory nation. And the United States today cannot afford to be either tired or Tory.
0: That was an excerpt of Senator John F. Kennedy accepting the Democratic nomination for president. I'll comment on that in just a moment, but let me finish with the reading from Richard Slotkin's Gunfighter Nation. Kennedy's use of the new frontier tapped a vein of latent ideological power. While he and his advisers could not have predicted just how effective the symbolism would be, they certainly understood that they were invoking what was a venerable tradition in American political rhetoric. They knew from their own experience of American culture that figures of speech referring to this tradition would be intelligible to the widest possible audience, to Brooklyn and Cambridge, as well as Abilene and Los Angeles. They had grounds for knowing, or at least intuiting that this set of symbols was also an appropriate language for explaining and justifying the use of political power. The exchange of an old domestic agrarian frontier for a new frontier of world power and industrial development had been a central trope in American political historiographical debates since the 1890s. Sixty-seven years almost to the day before Kennedy's address, Frederick Jackson Turner had delivered an epoch-making address on the significance of the frontier in American history, in which he asserted that the contemporary crisis of American development had arisen from the closing of an old frontier and the delay in finding a new one. His frontier thesis would become the basis of a dominant school of American historical interpretation, and would provide historiographic rationale for the ideologies of both Republican progressives and Democratic liberals for much of the ensuing century. Just to reiterate, that was an excerpt from Richard Slotkin's book, Gunfighter Nation. It is part of a trilogy exploring the frontier myth. The first book is Regeneration Through Violence, second is The Fatal Environment, and the final one is Gunfighter Nation. Now, the frontier myth has been pervasive in our politics, literature, films, songs, life, and definitely our culture. Now, I do not want to minimize or ignore the terrible things that happened in developing that myth, but that's a broader discussion that deserves its own episode. I do find it interesting, though, that Kennedy was calling for a new frontier. He was harnessing a harder-edged rhetoric that is usually utilized by Republicans with great success. The Republican Party are masters at marketing and creating simplistic slogans that appeal to the base instincts of a wide audience. In this case, Kennedy utilized that technique and went on to win the presidency. In contrast to our base instincts, I'd like to appeal to your humanity as well as your passion. Too often in our society, kindness and doing what's intelligent, smart and or to the benefit of the many as opposed to the few, is deemed soft or weak, when it is actually the strongest action one can take. Taking actions that harm people is not only weak, it is lazy. Right now, in my opinion, we have a strong military and a strong sovereign fiat currency. Both of these allow us to deal with the world beyond our borders in a beneficial fashion. In contrast to this, within our borders, we are weak. And there are too many issues to list, but here are a few. We have low pay compared to the living expenses. We have way too much homelessness that shouldn't even exist anymore. We have people that are hungry. We have a disjointed healthcare system that is expensive and inadequate. We have infrastructure that's falling apart, systematic and institutional racism, a misdirected value system on the value of professions an inadequate value on human life, a system where profit motivates incarceration rate, a drug war that causes too many problems to list, a militarization of our police force, election systems that disenfranchise instead of encouraging participation, we have out-of-control term limits, and a million other systems that make it difficult for our country to battle the myriad of issues and obstacles that are bound to arise. Now, I welcome you on this quest to build our vision of a new frontier, one of equality and opportunity, one where knowledge is not discouraged, one where everyone has access to healthcare, one where green initiatives are seen as bringing us towards self-sufficiency, strength, and being less reliant on other countries, one where interest rates are not out of control, with the result being the continual decline of the many, while characterizing poverty as a lack of responsibility. These are just a few of the many things that require vast improvement, and we have the ability to be a strong nation inside and out. Now I'd like to recommend the works of author and historian Ibram Kendi and political commentator, strategist, and soon-to-be author Heather McGee. Ibram Kendi states that Americans have long been trained to see the deficiencies of people rather than policy. It's a pretty easy mistake to make. People are in our faces. Policies are distant. We are particularly poor at seeing the policies lurking behind the struggles of people. I believe it's important to first recognize that we're being subjected to policies and systems that perpetuate not only racism, but poverty, homelessness, having the world's highest incarceration rates, uh, 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, and secondly, to root out these systems and policies and burn them to the ground. These issues do not occur, more or less perpetuate, by accident. Let me read you an excerpt from an interview with Kendi from The Undefeated. We have been taught that ignorance and hate lead to racist ideas, lead to racist policies, Kendi said. If the fundamental problem is ignorance and hate, then your solutions are going to be focused on education and love and persuasion. But of course, stamped from the beginning, Kendi's book, shows that the actual foundation of racism is not ignorance and hate, but self-interest, particularly economic and political and cultural Self-interest drives racist policies that benefit that self-interest. When the policies are challenged because they produce inequalities, racist ideas spring up to justify those policies. Hate flows freely from there. Those are pretty powerful truths. And, uh, you know, that leads me to Heather McGee's TED Talk called Racism Has a Cost for Everyone. Now, I've personally always felt that treating people well because it's the right thing to do should suffice but in addition I also believe that even if somebody is 100% self-interested that it is still in their best interest to treat others well. Treating people poorly may have some short-term gains in the same way that lying or cheating does but since every action has a reaction those short-term gains can only last so long and in our culture We've treated racisms like a backwards Ponzi scheme using systems and policy based on self-interest and then perpetuated through the use of racism, a divide-and-conquer strategy, and an early indoctrination in the acceptance that the exclusion of everyone that's different is a good, is a good policy. This is why I found Heather McGee's talk and hypothesis so refreshing, and she backs up her hypothesis with examples where racism did indeed have an economic and cultural cost to everyone, not just its intended victims. Kendi states, If there is anything I have learned during my research, it's that the principal producers and defenders of racist ideas will not join us and no logic or fact or history book can change them because logic and facts and scholarship have little to do with why they are expressing racist ideas in the first place. I, too, while talking to uh, supporters of politicians that espouse racist ideology, have found this personally true, and, uh, That is why McGee's talk and her upcoming book make me at least a touch optimistic because right now the powers that be believe their systems and policies are working for them, and to an extent they are. There are a myriad of social ills that are directly attributable to them, but their victory is to be short-lived. We have the numbers and the power to change these systems and policies, but the only way that the powers that be are going to acquiesce is when they realize that these systems and policies have a cost for them as well, that they are perpetuating a system of diminishing returns. Now, I want to leave you with two more quotes from Kendi. Uh, This one in particular is is pretty fantastic as really uh, all his quotes are. No one becomes racist or anti-racist. We can only strive to be one or the other. I implore you to please remember this truth in your daily lives. Uh, we're on a moving train of existence, and uh, neutrality is is inc- encouraging um, injustice. Now, and lastly, this is a belief that really is a prerequisite to humanity. It's also why I love Captain America's utterance of, I don't like bullies. I don't care where they come from. Here is Kendi's quote, and then I'll wrap up this episode. I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it is for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost, and as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. So to wrap up today's episode, I'd like to welcome everyone who joins in the quest for a new frontier. Today we spoke about Richard Slotkin's Gunfighter Nation. It is definitely a book I recommend. We spoke about Ibram Kendi and Heather McGee. I'll put a link to Kendi's interview and McGee's TED Talk in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and in the next episode I'll be focusing on the movement all across our country and really all around the world to remove and relocate monuments that glorify the Confederacy or basically any entity that's business was to um, hinder people, hurt people. So in every facet of our lives, it's necessary to not only look back at the past, but to recognize where we are right now. In regards to this specific topic, a senior curator At uh, the Smithsonian American Art Museum and a scholar in Civil War history, Eleanor Harvey recognizes where we are right now when she states, If white nationalists and neo-Nazis are now claiming this as a part of their heritage, they have essentially co-opted those images and those statues beyond any capacity to neutralize them again. That is where we are right now. And those statues need to go. Now, in the next episode, we'll cover some history as well as the groups that are perpetuating these monuments' existence and the groups that are rallying for their removal. It's going to be a great episode. And on that note, I'd like to mention one event uh, that is called Allies Rally Against Confederate and Police Violence. This is a rally by the Williamson County Patriots with the goal of relocating the Confederate soldiers' and Sailor's Monument from the Williamson County Courthouse to either the Williamson County Museum or a nearby cemetery where Confederate soldiers are buried. The weekly rallies will occur on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. in front of the courthouse located at 710 South Main Street in Georgetown, Texas. Now, as I said, these movements are occurring all over the U.S. and the world, so I'm sure you can find one to support in your area. Now, on a personal note, I'd like to send my love and support to my uncle, Rick Bazan, who has just been diagnosed with cancer. Hopefully everyone has members in their family who are special to them, and he's one that's special to me, and I-, I wanted to send my love. Now, cancer is a vicious beast, and one that has most likely touched all of our lives in one way or another. If you have the means, please support your local or national charity, uh, cancer charities. You know, a good resource in picking one um, is charitynavigator.org, which evaluates over 9,000 charities on on the charities' transparency, accountability, and financial health uh, so that you can make the best decision possible. <sighs> I'd also like to dedicate this show to the memory of Angie Martinez, Ian Galeweiler, and Cameron Thomas Scott, three dear friends who will be sorely missed. There's a GoFundMe for Cameron Thomas Scott, which I'll put in the show notes. Again, if you have the means to exhibit kindness in an economic fashion, please do so. Uh, today's episode will conclude with a voice and the words of Kimberly Jones. You may have heard an excerpt of this interview on this or that, uh, but here it is in its entirety. It is powerful, and it warrants a listen. Until then, keep your head up and remember the words of Nelson Mandela. Overcoming poverty is not a task of charity. It is an act of justice. Like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It is man-made and can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. Sometimes it falls on a generation to be great. You can be that great generation. Let your greatness blossom. Please support this episode by sharing it with your family, friends, and community. I humbly thank you for listening. Here the words and wisdom of Kimberly Jones.
1: So, I've, I've been seeing a lot of things talking of the people making commentary. Um, interestingly enough, the ones I've noticed that have been making the commentary are wealthy black people making the commentary about we should not be rioting we should not be looting we should not be tearing up our own communities and then there's been an argument of the other side of we should be hitting them in the pocket we should be focusing on the blackout days where we don't spend money um but you know i feel like we should do both and i feel like i support both and i'll tell you why i support both i support both because there when you have a civil unrest like this there are three type of people in the streets There are the protesters, there are the rioters, and there are the looters. The protesters are there because they actually care about what is happening in the community. They wanna raise their voices and they are there strictly to protest. You have the rioters who are angry, who are anarchists, who really just want to fuck shit up and that's what they're gonna do regardless. And then you have the looters. And the looters almost exclusively are just there to do that, to loot. Now, people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, We're not focusing on the why, and that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff." Okay, well, then let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country, in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get something. Some of the things that we flaunt a flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it, that they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're going to get, is that in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting, that's their only opportunity to get it. We need to be questioning that why. Why are people that poor? Why are people that poor? broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH, where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that Black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you. And for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are pla- Those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property and they burned them to the ground so that's 450 years so for 400 rounds of monopoly you don't get to play at all not only do you not get to play you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against you have to play and make money and earn wealth for them and then you have to turn it over to them So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play and every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is. Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken And if the social contract is broken Why the fuck do I give a shit About burning the fucking football hall of fame About burning a fucking target You broke the contract When you killed us in the streets And didn't give a fuck You broke the contract when for 400 years We played your game and built your wealth You broke the contract When we built our wealth again On our own by our bootstraps In Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us when we built it in Rosewood, and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.